Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. We are in this message series looking at the famous last words of God recorded in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. As we've said, last words carry more weight than everyday words do, and that's because last words tend to be summary words. They summarize what the speaker values and what they want those they love to know and to do after they're gone. And so the last words of God to us are recorded in the Bible, and they summarize the 10 most important topics that every one of us must eventually face. And here's a list of the 10 in the book of Revelation. Now, these 10 are presented to us in Revelation, not as a to-do list or even a list of rules that we're supposed to keep, but really a, a series of visions for us to see. And the reason is because we don't build our lives based on what we're told to do. We build out our lives based on our vision of the future, what we actually see. And in these most famous of last words, God burns into our collective imagination ten poetic paintings, ten images of the way things really are now and the way they will be at the end. And if we will allow our imaginations to be stretched and corrected by these ten images, then we will build a life over time that produces more of the joy described in this book and less of the sorrow that's described in this book. Now, the first image that we looked at is the image of Christ in his place at the center of all of reality and us in our place before him on our knees in surrender and then on our feet to follow him in obedience. The second image we looked at last week is the image of the church. Ordinary places like this, full of ordinary people like us, that turn out to be the lampstands of God's light in this world. Today we're going to turn our collective imaginations to the third painting in the book of Revelation. It's a vision of the way worship looks and appears from God's perspective. Now, to the casual observer, what we do here every Sunday morning is, you know, not that impressive. I mean, we sing songs that are not that popular in our culture, and we read from a very old book that very few take people take seriously anymore. And then someone like me stands up here on stage, having read from that book, we make comments and applications from that book. And to be honest, you know, whatever I say or other people say, it doesn't have a lot of entertainment value to it. There may be some, but not a lot. And then sometimes we end this hour by eating little pieces of bread and drinking juice to remember the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, given our busy, busy lives and the beauty and the weather of this part of the world, it's, it's baffling that anyone would do this once, let alone Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. But it turns out there's much more going on here than meets the eye. It's gatherings like this that God says is, is really like a door that allows us to get a glimpse of heaven now. Now, painting number two of the church points to painting number three of worship in Revelation. The last word to the Laodicean church was an invitation to worship. Here's what Jesus says in Revelation 3.20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now, I grew up hearing that this verse was a personal invitation that Jesus makes to each one of us. And in a sense, that's true. But there's much more going on here than that. This is part of a letter that was written to a church. And so the door that Jesus is knocking on is not an individual door. 
It's a church door. So what happens when this door is opened? Well, Revelation chapter 4 and 5 answers that question and shows us what occurs when we gather like this as the church in worship. Just two verses after Revelation 3.20, we see Jesus opening the door. Here's what we read in Revelation 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So what's on the other side of the door that Jesus has been knocking on? It's heaven. In worship, the door to heaven is cracked open. Not just so that we could satisfy our curiosity. What what does the voice say? It says, come up here. We gather in worship so that the perspective we have on our ordinary everyday life might be elevated. It's an invitation to raise our collective heads and our, our vision of what's really going on around us. The reason we need this is not just so that we can feel better about ourselves, but so that we can see what must take place after this. What is this? Well, this is whatever's going on in your life now. I don't know if this week was a good week for you or a bad week, or this day is a good day or a bad day for you. But what tends to happen over time is all of us get caught up in our this, whatever this is, this problem, this challenge, this obstacle that we're trying to overcome. And the big question is not what is going on now, but what are we going to do next? What decision are we going to make after this, tomorrow, this afternoon? And the quality of the decisions that we make is determined by the accuracy of our vision of the future. But if all we can see is this, and sometimes this is so overwhelming and the emotions are so powerful and the challenges are so big, we can't see our way beyond this. And then we get the invitation to come up here, to see things from heaven's perspective, so that we might understand what must take place after this. Heaven has the best view of what's really going on in the middle of this. And worship reveals to us the perspective from from heaven in four very important ways. First of all, worship centers. It calls us to the center. Revelation 4, 2 through 3, the next verses say this, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald, encircled the throne. So after the door is opened and the invitation to come up here and look from the view of heaven is given, the first thing that is seen in this vision is a throne. Now, a throne represents the center of authority. The word throne appears in 17 of the 22 chapters in the book of Revelation. Just five verses later, we are told in this chapter that the someone who is sitting on the throne is the Lord God Almighty. Now, if we were in heaven, it would be impossible to miss the fact that God is the one who is on the throne and at the very center of everything. But we're not in heaven. We're on earth. And here on earth, boy, there's a lot of thrones vying for power. There are political thrones and 
economic thrones and military thrones and academic thrones. And in all of the power struggles of this world in our life, it's really easy to miss God sitting on his throne. And, of course, the most disorienting throne of all is the one that we've all constructed for ourselves. We have all decided that we should be at the center of our lives, seated on our throne. And the way that plays itself out is we really expect that the people and the circumstances that surround our world should bow before us and do our bidding. Now, we don't want them to literally bow before us, but we want them to do what we want them to do. And when they don't, we're furious because they're not bowing before our throne of selfishness. But all of these thrones, our selfish thrones, are, are failed kingdoms because no matter how much power we can amass in this world, we are not, in fact, at the center. God is. And until we surrender our little kingdoms and get down off of our thrones, we will live a life of chaos. We will live, well, a real life, Game of Thrones. You know, I've not seen this popular show, and I do not recommend that you watch it. So don't go away from here saying, my pastor thinks I should watch this show. That's not the case. But this is a very popular show on HBO. It's wrapping up its final season now. And this is the way the writers describe the plot behind this work of fantasy, Game of Thrones. This is what they say. Everyone is either vying to claim a throne or fighting for independence from a throne. That's the plot line. And as I read that plot line, I thought, that's exactly what's really going on in the real world. Everybody's either vying to claim a throne or fighting for independence from a throne. You see, we look out on our world every week, every day, and this is what we see, a Game of Thrones. We hear what's swirling around the latest scramble for power between the Democrats and the Republicans, and this has been a week of that. And then we go to work, and we compete for a seat that's closer to the center of the throne, maybe of our industry or maybe of our company, or we're caught in the political games that go on in whatever place of work that we have. And then we go home, and if we're married, we find ourselves married to a spouse who's very much like us in this area, and that is that he or she is seated on the throne of their own life, and they're trying to make everything work out the way they want it to work out, just like we're trying to make everything work out the way we want to work out. And so it's not uncommon in marriages for us to vie for what we're going to do and struggle between just those two thrones. And then if we have kids, well... Our kids, it turns out, are trying to run their own little kingdoms. We've got to figure out how to manage all of that and how to respond to that. And so every day we, we go through this, and then we wake up the next morning and we face these things all over again. And that's why one day a week the king of kings knocks on the door of his subjects and invites us to leave this game of thrones and take yet another tour of the castle of heaven and bow before the King of Kings, who sits on the throne of thrones. Invites us to center our lives around the throne that would capture every eye if we could just see it. So worship centers us. It invites us to, to put our lives in proper perspective, to put this, whatever this is, 
in its rightful place. Then secondly, worship gathers. It centers, and then it gathers. As we approach the throne of God, we discover we're not alone. It's more than just us at the throne. Revelation 4.4, the next verse says, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. So around the one throne on which the Almighty God is seated were 24 other thrones with an elder seated on each one. What is this? This is a, a double 12, 2 times 12, representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the church. These 24 thrones collectively cover the history of those who have gathered around this one throne of the Almighty God and directed their gaze heavenward throughout the centuries. First, it was Israel in the Old Testament. And now, since the New Testament, well, it's been us. It's been the church. And so what happens every Sunday is we enter these doors as individuals. We've left our individual homes. We've left our individual responsibilities. We've driven our individual cars, parked in our individual parking spots, and we've walked in and taken our individual seats. And so our natural tendency is to go through this hour as individuals, looking for something to help us with our individual life. And then leave as individuals, having learned something that we can use in our individual weeks. But more is going on here than just some individual help. We are not just a collection of individuals today. We are part of a collection of thrones. And thrones have history to them. As we gather every Sunday, we are standing near the end of a long line of people who throughout history have done what we are doing today. We're not here just looking for what will help us with our individual lives. That's why people go to grocery stores, not why people go to church. Now, we do find help here. But we're not here to get a spiritual loaf of bread to help us with our spiritual lives. That does happen. But primarily, we are gathered here first to gaze on the throne that centers all of reality so that we can put our individual lives in proper orbit around God. And then as we look side to side in this room and then throughout all of time, we see what heaven sees. Our individual lives finding their orientation and purpose by being a part of God's people. Now, this is very challenging for us as individualistic Americans to ever grasp. We view the church as kind of a spiritual grocery store that we can pick up some of the spiritual stuff that we need. But that's not the way our lives are designed to be. We are not just individuals standing before God's throne and then facing our week. We are individual lives finding their orientation and purpose by being a part of God's people. So it's in this gathering that has gone on through the centuries that we are reminded to get down off of our individual thrones and to serve our God. To stop making the church 
one of the things in orbit around our individual lives, but to make our lives in orbit around the purposes of God. But it turns out we humans are not the only ones gathered around this throne. All of creation is gathered together with us. The next verses in Revelation 4 say something pretty shocking. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man that represents humankind. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, if you just try to imagine these creatures, it doesn't take very long before you realize this is like a freak show. I mean, just imagine these creatures with eyes all around, six wings. What, what is this that's gathered around the throne of God? These four creatures represent all of the aspects of creation. Now we, we are one of these four creatures with a face like a man. You know, as humans made in the image of God, we do have a unique position around the throne. But the rest of creation is also invited to this party. The rest of creation is not silent. They are given a voice, too, in worship. Now, this is not the first time we've been introduced to the idea in the Bible that more worship God than just us humans. Psalm 19, 1 through 2, is an example talking about how the, the heavens worship God. It says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, and night after night they display knowledge. But we thought that only we were the ones that spoke, and only we were the ones that had knowledge. But all of creation pour, pours forth speech before the throne of God. Now this sounds very similar to what is being described in this scene. Because again, in the book of Revelation, this is not the first time we've heard these themes. This is the last time we will hear these themes. And what does it say about these creatures? Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And this is very important for us to grasp because we tend to think of worship not only as an individual approach before the throne, we think that worship is kind of a separating and pulling away from the real world. We're going now into the spiritual world. But worship is not a departure from the real world, the real world of what we can see and into the spiritual world of what we can't see. Now, worship gathers all of reality, both what is seen and what is unseen, and centers it around God's throne. So in worship, we find our place and our purpose and we need this not just once or maybe two times. We need this every seven days. Because all it takes is six days for us to get locked into this, whatever this mess is, and to firmly establish ourselves back on our own thrones or to be caught in the swirl of whatever the power struggle of the Game of Thrones that we find ourselves in. And every week we are called to gather Jesus knocks on the door and says, it's time for you to get a glimpse from up here of what's going on down there and to center our lives around this. 
But then thirdly, worship reveals. After that great gathering scene before the throne, we read this, Revelation 5, 1 through 4. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now, to the first century Christian, scroll meant scripture. That's the way things were written at that period of time in, on scroll form. And so the books of the Bible were written on scrolls. But whether it's written in scroll form, like it was then, or in page form, like it is now, the words of God have always been a predominant feature of God's people gathered in worship. We don't just gather around the throne of God, we gather around the words of what God has said to us. So it's no surprise in this great painting of worship that we find a scroll appearing. What is surprising is that the appearance of the scroll causes John to weep and to weep. Why? Well, the scroll is sealed, and no one could be found, as it said, who was worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. This is pointing to an old problem that the people of the first century, listening to these words, knew well. The problem was this, not not a physical seal that would prevent them from physically opening the scrolls of God's Word, but a, a seal of insight that kept them from really understanding what these words meant. You see, for hundreds of years, the people of God had debated over how the prophecies of the Old Testament would be fulfilled and when they might be fulfilled and who might fulfill these prophecies. The, soul, the, the scrolls had been sealed. Well, they could be read, but... What do these mean? And then one day, a carpenter's son stood up at the weekly gathering of the synagogue in his hometown, and he asked for the scroll of Isaiah to be brought to him. This is very uncommon. The public reading of Scripture was usually reserved for elders and rabbis, not a carpenter's son. But we read this in Luke 4, 17-21. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him to Jesus. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Can you imagine this scene? And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Here is how that scene is described in Revelation. Again, Revelation is not new news. It's a retelling of what's already happened. Revelation 5.5 5 is the description of that scene from heaven. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Until the arrival of Jesus Christ, 
the lion from the tribe of Judah, the descendant from the line of David? The answers to so many of the questions in Scripture could not be found. They could be speculated, but no one knew. The scrolls were sealed. The understanding was shrouded in mystery. But now, now we know. Now they can be understood. You know, one of the great joys of Christian worship is that Christ has unsealed the scrolls. No more guessing. So when we gather each Sunday to open up these unsealed scrolls and listen to explanations of what these words mean now and how we might apply them to our daily lives, that's, that's cause for joy, not weeping. Now, once the scrolls are opened by Jesus and the weeping of John stops, the next thing we hear in heaven is singing. That's the fourth thing that worship does. It sings. Singing has always been the serious business of heaven and therefore a major part of worship. Revelation 5.9 says, And they sang a new song. And in that, the words of that song are recorded. Verses 11 through 12, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne of the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they sang. That's hard for us to imagine. Angels numbering 10,000s upon 10,000s, and not just singing softly, but in a loud voice singing. And then the words of that song are listed. Verse 13, then I heard every creature in heaven. You can just hear this crescendo building. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Have you ever wondered why we do all of this singing every Sunday? I mean, let's be honest, it's not normal. When else do we do this? I mean, when else this week are you going to get together with people and just sing? I mean, you might go to a sporting event and mumble your way through the national anthem, but you're not gathered there to sing. That's just what you do if you get there early enough, but you're there for the sporting event. You might go to a concert and sing along with one of your favorite songs, but you're not the focus. The focus is on the performance. In fact, the performance is so loud that there's no chance that anyone will hear your, hear your singing. So you can sing at the top of your lungs knowing that no one's going to hear this. You're not the focus. But this singing is different. This singing is about you and me singing to God in worship. Not watching people on stage singing. Not evaluating the performance of the musicians. And as you read through the book of Revelation, one of the most interesting things is that it, it seems like in almost every case, if something is said in heaven, it is sung in heaven. Heaven appears to be one big musical. Now, I love music. I am not a fan of musicals. Now, they've been doing some better ones recently, but still, in a musical, it just seems odd. You know, a guy's going to say something to his gal, and he sings. And I'm thinking, just say it. Nobody does that. You don't just walk up there and say, whoa, whoa. You know, you, you, nobody, you just, just say the words. Just say what you mean. Don't, don't start singing it. But God appears to be a big fan of singing. And not just in heaven. 
I mean, if you listen to the sounds of creation, he loves song. The singing doesn't end at the borders of heaven. All of creation is one big musical to God. And the question is why? What is it that's so important to God about us singing to him? Well, you see, singing is the language of the soul. It's the language of the heart. Words allow us to convey ideas from one mind to another mind. But so much of life and so much of creation is beyond just words, right? How much more so the author of all of it? I mean, if you want to describe how much you love your spouse or how much you love your kids, you can use words, but does that cover it? No. I mean, you may not be a a musician, but you know that I I don't have enough words to describe how, how deeply I feel about this person. Or you see the beauty of a sunset. Yeah, you, you can write it down. But it demands more than that to capture what you're seeing. So much of life and creation is beyond words. So if we want to just think about God and leave here with ideas to ponder about God, then words will do. And that's part of what we do. That's the worship reveals part. We, we consider God's truth and we ponder how we might apply it to our lives. But if we are to also bow in the presence of all power and all beauty, we've just got to sing. Even if you're not a good singer. And so it just won't do to to stand before the throne of God with arms crossed in silence because we're way too cool to sing. Or mumbling our way through just a few songs mindlessly. It is an affront to the throne of God to gather and sing mindlessly without thought of the words that we are singing or the one that we are singing them to. Now, I know you may be an absolutely awful singer. And, you know, we don't crank the volume quite as loud as they do in concerts, so you don't have as much cover here because we don't want to hurt your ears. But the point is not your awful singing. The point is you and me worshiping before God, and that, that demands song not just words. So I want to invite the band to join me back up on stage because now that we've talked about worship, we're going to worship. We're going to sing a couple songs together before we wrap up today. And let me just clarify, when we talk about singing before God, the goal is not to kind of gin up and pump up some emotional inside kind of feeling. That is not the purpose of worship. Just sing. Pay attention to the words, focus your thoughts around the throne of God, and sing. Some Sundays, there may be more emotion involved. Other Sundays, there may not be as many. That's okay. God is not measuring your emotion and saying, oh, you really worship today, or next Sunday, nah, kind of flatlined on that worship. Now that, that's, that's not the goal, is to gin up emotion. The goal is to worship. It's not about you, not about me, it's about God. So let me read. Revelation 5, 13 through 14 together. Here's what it says. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four creatures said, Amen. And the elders 
all 24 of them, all of time, fell down and worshiped. Boy, I'd love to hear that scene and see that scene. But for now, this is as close as it gets. So let's go ahead and stand. I invite you to stand and let's join our voices together with all of creation gathered around the throne. And let's sing to our God. <laughs> 